this works. We should be live. Uh, but as always, I require someone watching to verify our existence. So, uh, and I'm joined today by Frank White, uh, author of The Cosmo Hypothesis and uh, the originator of the term, the overview effect, which we're going to get into uh, shortly. So, uh, all right, there we go. Some people have, have verified our existence. So, Frank, yeah. uh, welcome to my, uh, my open space conversation. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, now, I gave people a bit of a, an intro about sort of who you are and, and what you do, but now I'll let you give a more proper – people always give me a hard time if I don't, like, say who the person is because I guess, you know, they, their time is valuable. They need to make sure they know who this is. So uh, why don't you tell people who you are and, and what you do? Okay. Well, I am, I would say, a writer by trade, although like many writers, I've done a lot of other things to pay the bills. And so in a broader sense, I think I would say I'm a communicator. And I have been a communicator for many years. But what's probably most relevant for our discussion tonight is that I had an experience in the late 70s, early 80s flying cross country that led me to um, coin the term overview effect. Uh, develop a theory around it. And in essence, I dedicated my life to that work. And uh, so who I am right now is a person who thinks about the overview effect, the Cosmo hypothesis and similar topics all the time, and then writes about them and tries to share these ideas with others. All right, so let, let's talk about the the first. Let's talk about the overview effect, and this is something that that we did a whole episode of Astronomy Cast on this. Um, people who maybe have watched One Strange Rock, they talk quite a bit about the overview effect. Um, and so, why don't you let people know sort of what this is? Okay, I would start by saying that I have been interested, like many of the people viewing our discussion. I have been interested in space exploration for a very long time. My cousin, my first cousin who grew up with me, swears that when I was a little kid, I told her, Anne, we can't stay on this planet forever. You know, we're going to have to leave this planet and go elsewhere. And she says that happened when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that, but I remember my mother gave me a little book called Stars, which many people have read. It's a golden book of astronomy. That I do remember. It really, it really blew my mind. Uh, just, oh my God, there's a universe out there. And I, I just started, you know, buying binoculars, telescopes, the whole thing, and beginning to try to understand it. And this evolved into an interest in space exploration, science fiction. I think it's a familiar path for people. But what led to the overview effect was a amplification of all that, which was that I got involved with the Space Studies Institute, Jerry O'Neill's uh, organization. And that was a wonderful homecoming for me because I am not an engineer, I'm not a scientist. I'm a social scientist, a philosopher, a humanist, 
that was the place I found where people wanted to hear what I had to say. And I was fascinated with his idea of space settlements and large scale space settlements at that. I was thinking constantly about what life would be like in a space settlement. And so on a trip cross country, uh, I was staring out the window throughout the flight. And I think I experienced a mild version of the overview effect. Uh, and the thought came into my mind, if I lived in a space settlement all the time, I would always see the earth as a whole system, as an interconnected whole system, no borders, no boundaries, all the things I'm seeing in a, in a slightly truncated version from the airplane. And this would represent a new philosophical outlook. This is the kind of thing we're trying to get into our brains here on the surface of the earth. Space settlers would just know those things. Well, of course there were no space settlers. So I thought maybe a proxy would be astronauts. And trying to interview them, I started with NASA. I told NASA I had to interview all the astronauts. There were 200 <laughs> <laughs> no, they kind of laughed at me and uh, said, well, they're kind of busy, uh, but if you come to Houston, we'll give you two. Right. And then whoever that guy was changed my life because he said, you know, you can interview retired astronauts. We don't control them. Oh, never thought of that. So I started interviewing them and What's interesting is the, the focus of the concept changed a bit because what I was thinking of as ordinary, kind of the picture behind me, always having the earth in the sky, changed into something extraordinary because all astronauts are like you and I, you and me. They leave the earth to go out there and it's something, it's startling in a way especially the early ones. So what happened was that the overview effect for now is really something about people who are born on the earth who leave it and have this shift in awareness, shift in worldview, change of consciousness. And someday in the future, we may have that other definition which is the person born on an O'Neill space settlement or born on the moon for whom they have this awareness, but it's, it's not so much of a change. From there, what happened was the first edition of the book came out in 1987. And it's interesting because we're now working on the fourth edition. <laughs> <laughs> and I started with interviews with 16 astronauts. It's now 31. The idea as embodied in the book has never sold a lot of copies of the book, but for a number of reasons we can get into, the idea is now ubiquitous. People yeah. use it a lot. 
so I, I'm like I'm interested to sort of hear what those themes were, right? This idea, you know, as you talk to astronauts, the same themes kept coming up, and this this idea that you had hypothesized sort of as a as a philosophical argument and as you imagining what it might be like as you talk to astronauts, you discover something fairly profound about their perspective of the Earth that only appeared once they had been to space. Right. There's so much there. I, I've been working on this for so many years and I still find new things. I discover new things. And in fact, every astronaut I interview tells me something I didn't know or I learned something from what they say that I didn't know. But there are certain common themes that emerge. And one of them is the surprise at not seeing any borders or boundaries. Now, this also is part of another theme, which is the difference between experiential knowledge and intellectual knowledge. Because if I say to you, Fraser, there are no borders or boundaries on the surface of the earth, you say, of course, I know that. That's just on maps, which are kind of made up things. Uh, but you know, you can't see borders or boundaries on the surface either, actually. Yeah. Uh, and, and we don't find that extraordinary, do we? No, I mean, you do that, right? You cross, you're driving along, you cross the border between Washington and Oregon, and it's a marker. And, yeah. or, or I cross the border from Canada to the U.S. And again, it's like a, there's, a, there's a fence that we go through and then we're on the other side. Yeah, and maybe there's a sign, you know, welcome yeah. to Massachusetts in my case. Well, but the point is for the astronauts, for whatever reason, and they say this to me, I knew there weren't any borders or boundaries. It's just seeing it that's really amazing. And the other part I think is true they do see the earth as a whole and on the surface we don't we don't see the earth as this interconnected system and i think in a way that's what they're getting at with no borders or boundaries and in fact there is kind of a counter point to this which is well actually you can see changes in how farming practices right. and other activities do in a way show borders and boundaries but that's one thing the other aspect of it is the thinness of the atmosphere. The realization is that that's what protects us from the harshness of outer space. And again, from the surface, the sky looks pretty endless, but from orbit or from, well, you don't even see the atmosphere from the moon, but from orbit, you see it's terribly thin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know that Wow, we're lucky to be alive. I would put it like that. And, and then, I mean, I think that that from that, you found that as the astronauts returned to Earth, they, you know, being fairly profoundly changed by this this experience that they had had, stuck with them. And they often would involve themselves in various activities that would, you know, sort of further that perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important to share with people that not every astronaut came back speaking of a religious or spiritual experience. Not every astronaut came back or comes back speaking of how, the, you know, they have to deal with saving the planet 
and getting involved in environmental issues. One of the biggest moments, most important moments in my work was interviewing Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell had one of the most profound experiences anyone had or has had in their space travel uh, time in space. And it, it, what he experienced is often seen as the paradigm, the, the basic way in which space affects people. But he asked me what had I learned. And at that point, I hadn't interviewed that many people. And I said, well, I learned that it was not a homogeneous experience, that actually everybody had a different experience. And he said, no, I would contest that. I believe we all had the same experience, but some of the guys expressed it in religious terms, some expressed it in scientific terms. It, it has to come through the belief system and the background of the person. And so that has been my way of understanding it. And I've tried to make it clear to people who have focused on maybe Edgar Mitchell's experience and believed that that was what everybody went through to say that, no, uh, Edgar's probably right. The brain probably had the same experience in every case, but the way it has been shared has been different because people are different. And I think you get a, uh, you get a glimpse of that. Like when you look at the, at the classic photograph taken by Voyager of of the Earth in that ray of sunlight, and read his read Carl Sagan's words about how, you know, everything that has ever happened, all of humanity is on this couple of pixels that's on this photograph taken by the spacecraft, and that everything that we do, at the end of the day, is just to to you know, is, is just involved with this tiny little rock in this tiny corner of this vast universe. And yeah. we're stuck here. And there's, <clears throat> there's a, there's a great picture that just came out just a, a couple of, of weeks ago where Israel's Bereshit lander, which is on its way to the moon right now, took a selfie with the moon and with the earth in the background. And it's just like, everybody's in that picture, mm -hmm. right? Everybody yeah. who's, everybody who is who right now, alive today who's ever lived is in this picture and and you're in this picture too and it's yeah. a you know and you just you get that you get that sense as much as we think our 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 world is big our our environment is is you know we've got lots of places we can go at the end of the day you can go far enough away and it turns into this tiny little spot i had a question from uh larry beckham did you interview cosmonauts as well I have not interviewed a cosmonaut yet, and that's a big um, hole in my work. I've used some quotes and some reports by cosmonauts uh, in the book. And so I know a little bit about how their experiences have, have uh, shaped them, but that's something I wish uh, I had done and I want to do. Uh, another thing I would mention is now that China's getting so involved, I would really love to in interview some of their Taikonauts. Yeah. Um, I, I did find an interesting YouTube interview with one of the Chinese astronauts, and uh, I think it was—I think it was a video or it was a story. But in any case, the interviewer said, uh, 
do you know what the overview effect is? And she said, oh, yes, we know what that is. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, again, um, the, the concept, the idea has become very common uh, nomenclature. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm sure, you know, if human spaceflight does become a more commonplace situation with eventually people going on SpaceX starships to Mars, that, that more and more people will get this chance to, to experience it. Uh, people always ask me, you know, would I go to space? And I will, I would, as long as it's safe. And that is, you know, that could be a long way uh, into the future. Well, astronauts as a bunch are uh, incredibly brave, braver than me. Uh, so let's yeah. shift gears then and talk a bit about the, the Cosmo Hypothesis. So you yeah. in the book mentioned, well, you mentioned that you, you had a, uh, a prenup with your, uh, with your wife that, that she would have to let you fly to space if uh, the opportunity came up. Uh, I hope Richard, Sir Richard Branson uh, is uh, has got a, a seat on his uh, spaceship for you. Um, uh, but but uh, that you have been sort of mulling over the deeper consequences of of this as part of a of a larger theory. So so can you talk a bit about the about how this extends into the Cosmo hypothesis? The Cosmo hypothesis is very strongly linked to the overview effect in a number of ways. One way is that uh, in 1986, when I was working on the overview effect, getting it ready for publication, we had the Challenger accident and I was watching TV while I was working on the book and they had Tom Wolfe, Isaac Asimov on This Week with David Brinkley and George Will, the commentator said, uh, Mr. Wolf, haven't we been justifying space exploration on rather banal grounds like no stick frying pans? And Tom Wolf said, you're exactly right. Uh, this country has never had a philosophy of space exploration. And I just stopped and I thought, yeah. What he meant was from the beginning, we were competing with the Soviet Union to get to the moon. And that was the philosophy. Yeah. Win that race at all costs. Um, now, I'd like to return to that another time if we have time, because it wasn't just a race. There was other, there were other aspects to it. But I then began thinking about developing a philosophy of space exploration. In other words, a rationale. And after pondering it for a while, what came to me was that all of the reasons that space advocates were giving, including me, for space exploration were homocentric. They were focused on benefiting humans. And even the overview effect in a way had that characteristic because I was saying the purpose of space exploration is for us to have a shift in worldview or a shift in consciousness. And it struck me that the hard question was, how do we benefit the larger environment by exploring space? How do we benefit the universe? And go ahead. Oh, well, so, I mean, you just, you just sort of opened yourself up to that, to that question. I mean, I think, uh, how, how can we benefit the universe by exploring space? Yeah. It's a hard question to answer. And it seems a bit overwhelming, 
But first thing I noticed, and, and, and I want to say this is not a scientific theory. It's a hypothesis, though, that could be, I suppose, verified by information yet to be discovered. But it's more of a logical series of questions. So the first question I asked myself was, how is it that the universe has supported evolution on Earth so that there actually is a spacefaring species? Um, and that, that brought me to function or purpose uh, in terms of the universe. And that led me to think, well, the universe is evolving. We're evolving, the universe is evolving. And at this moment in that evolution, the universe is actually alive, self-aware and intelligent. If we weren't here, would it be? Maybe not. Well, we don't know about intelligent life. So as a thought experiment, let's just say we only know that we exist and therefore we only know that the universe is alive and intelligent because we're here. And therefore, perhaps the reason we're here and the function we have is to help the universe evolve as we're evolving. Yeah, I mean, and Arthur C. Clarke had, you know, has that classic quote that either we're alone in the universe or we're not. And both outcomes are unsettling when you yeah. sort of think about the logical conclusion. I think the we're alone in the universe is the more unsettling thought to have. Because, you know, if we are alone in the universe, then then that means, you know, one, it's an awful waste of space, which I think is a is another quote. Um, <laughs> but this idea that we are um, that it would be terrible if the universe was able to evolve something as wonderful as life, as intelligent life, and then for whatever reason, we weren't able to get our act together. This either, you know, we wiped ourselves out or over time the sun heats up and wipes out all life on earth. And that was like the universe's one chance at, at generating a way for it to perceive itself. And again, it's like that idea. It's an awful waste of space. That's right. You know, that's, that's a really good point, uh, Frazier. I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of talk in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence community about the fact that maybe we haven't heard from anybody because they wiped themselves out. Uh, and that's why the Fermi paradox, that's how to answer the Fermi right. paradox. The great filter. Yeah. And, uh, and again, we think about how terrible it would be for us if we became extinct. I know you had someone talking about existential risk, yeah. human extinction. Well, we can relate that it would be horrible for humanity to perish, but then it would be horrible for the universe too. Or it could be terrible for the universe after nurturing this, uh, this evolutionary miracle in a way that it just comes to nothing. So uh, it seems to me that our evolutionary purpose or function 
may well be to carry life intelligence and self-awareness outward and to uh, perhaps link up with other intelligences. And in, in all of these ways, whether we do it alone or in concert with others, the universe becomes more aware of itself. And I also think it's a symbiotic relationship where humanity will benefit from that as well. Yeah, so so then let's talk about how this sort of leads into a more practical philosophy of of space exploration because I I know that the feedback that I get from from my viewers is that is that they're very frustrated by sort of the way it really seems like human space exploration policy is really just spinning its wheels that that you are seeing you know, the the moon race was so exciting and such an amazing accomplishment. And then since that point, it's been, <clears throat> we're going to go to the moon, we're going to go to Mars, we're going to go to an asteroid. Now we're going to go back to the moon. Now we're going to go back to Mars. Now we're going to go back to the moon. Like we are seeing the the whiplash of these different priorities going on and this, this inability to think over the long term. Um, so how does... You know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it is a justification. Like, I think we can all agree that if we don't, if we don't pull this off, then there's no guarantee that any future generation will pull it off. There's no guarantee that when the when the octopuses rise up, they won't pull it off, and eventually the sun will boil off the oceans, and that'll be that. So, what is the sort of practical approach that makes sense with that as our, you know? underlying philosophy that this is why we're doing it. Yeah, well, first of all, having that philosophy, the the Cosmo hypothesis, the, the idea that we do have a purpose uh, is helpful in a practical sense, because if that became a generally agreed upon understanding of the purpose, then I think it would encourage far more coordination and long-term planning among the space agencies of the world. Um, one thing I want to, I want to drop back just briefly and mention uh, something about uh, Apollo and the space race. Uh, most people are not aware of this, but, uh, and as you might guess, I've written a book about this too, uh, called The New Camelot, but uh, President Kennedy actually wanted Apollo to be a joint mission. Hmm. And he saw a joint lunar mission as a way to begin unwind, unwinding the Cold War. And he started reaching out to the Soviet leaders almost immediately after his inauguration, proposing a joint mission. They turned him down until after we had a Cuban missile, missile crisis where the two superpowers were facing each other with nuclear weapons and both sides realized, oh, this is a very dangerous game we're playing. So the Soviets started warming to the idea and then two months before he was killed, President Kennedy proposed a multinational mission to the moon. And when I think about that, I think about what was lost because if we had had a global commitment to moving on from the moon out into the solar system, history could have been dramatically different. 
and um I mean, I mean, we we did see a version of that with the Apollo uh, Soyuz dockings yep. that happened in the 1970s, and then of course the Mir space station, and then leading to the International Space Station. So I think, yeah, I feel pretty confident to say that we, through a fairly circuitous route, got to a point of international collaboration on space exploration. And when you think about the work that's done today, it really is done by all the nations simultaneously for now yeah. well that i think there's always been a kind of a competition collaboration balance going on i think the the point of what happened with kennedy and what was lost when he was assassinated is that it could have been greatly amplified then and we might be much further along now but to answer your question of what do we do now I have proposed what I call the human space program. And I propose it as a central project for humanity with a long time horizon of at least this millennium. And the idea there would be that we would begin a collaborative process, pro project that would engage all the space agencies and as many of the people on planet Earth in this great adventure of exploring and developing the solar system, but also doing it in the right way. And my proposal that's contained in the Cosmo hypothesis is to launch this with a series of task forces that would tackle the really critical issues that are not engineering or scientific issues, but more questions related to purpose and doing it right and avoiding 500 years from now, looking back on what we did in 2020 and saying, I wish we'd thought about that. I wish we had been a little more involved in exploration and a little less involved in exploitation. So for example, uh, one of the issues that is beginning to surface is what would we do if we do find life somewhere in the solar system? Uh, what, what if we find primitive life on Mars? Uh, Carl Sagan said, if we find primitive life on Mars, it should become off limits to people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that alone is a great question. I mean, the assumption that I think we're I mean, on the one, it's so funny, right? On the one hand, there's this assumption that we're going to find life on Mars. It's just a matter of time. The, the case is building with the discovery of water on the surface of Mars for long periods of time, that all of the conditions for life are there. We, we have meteorites from Mars here on Earth. We would assume that they've transferred back and forth. We know that life can survive. So there could be you know, even if life didn't form on its own in a separate place, you could see life moving back and forth between between worlds. <clears throat> it is a pristine environment that needs to be studied. And at the same time, you've got uh, gigantic spaceships being developed that will be able to ferry hundreds of people at a time to the surface of Mars to begin the uh, the process of colonizing the red planet. And go down that road too far and you guarantee that whatever life you find on Mars is going to be essentially modified and in many yeah. cases replaced by life that we brought from Earth. There will be this this 
um, I don't know, it's like this, this fossil bank that was discovered in China, this enormous reserve of species that was just found just in the last or announced in the last week. Like something like half of the life forms in this fossil bank were completely unknown to science to this point. And yet, I'm sure it makes really nice concrete. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well said. Yeah. Well, that's that's the kind of question I want to ask in creating the human space program is not only we've now, you know, we've almost solved the problem that space advocates were perturbed by for years, which is how the heck do we get out there? How do we go from high cost, low access to low cost, high access. The private sector has now really with reusability pretty much solved that problem. And I personally have spent many years advocating human space exploration. And, and I've made the argument, the overview effect is a really important argument for it because it changes our awareness. Hopefully by changing our awareness that will change the way we treat planet earth, which I think it has. Now I've changed my tune. I'm trying not to advocate, to, but more to have a conversation. And one of the ways uh, that I start a lot of my talks is I talk about the fact that, you know, um, for many years we thought of Christopher Columbus as a hero. And in the United States, we had Columbus Day because supposedly he discovered America. Uh, of course, that's not quite true either, but now we're changing it to Indigenous Peoples Day because now we're honoring some of the people who were exploited by Columbus and those who came after him. And most recently this year, this past year, Columbus, Ohio abandoned Columbus. And, uh, <laughs> They now celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. And, you know, right now, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson are heroes because they're opening up uh, the solar system. What would change so that 500 years from now, they would not be seen as heroic, but maybe as villains? And that kind of forward planning makes you stop and think is it really enough to put a million people on mars or is it how we put them there and what they do there that that we need to consider i mean i think already there are fairly two large competing hypotheses or philosophies between what elon musk wants to do and what jeff bezos wants to do and i think you know jeff uh, elon musk is all about colonizing mars as a backup for humanity as a backup for earth and as a cool place to live and as a triumph of of you know uh human technology and and spirit and and ability to explore the solar system and jeff bezos philosophy is a lot more about about pushing the the sort of the what is exploitation of our current environment heavy pollution power generation uh, resource loss on planet Earth and get that off the planet and out into space. And I think that that in fact, you actually have two fairly different overall philosophies for what is the reason to go to space. And, you know, I think 
I, like many people getting into this, started from the Elon Musk perspective. And I've got to say at this point, I am deeply in the Jeff Bezos camp that that the more we learn about planet Earth and the more we think about how great this place is, how wonderful it is for life, how perfectly connected and tuned we are with with the planet itself, the more and yet at the same time we're living in our own garbage, um, the more it makes sense to to exploit the universe to say, hey, let's, you know, let's take those asteroids, let's grind them up and let's use them for power generation. Let's, you know, but let's take this place that has the life. And I think that as soon as we can determine that there is life in other places, we find there's life on Mars, then I think that that, that gets added to the biosphere. And we, we, we treat it as carefully as we should be treating the Earth. But if Mars turns out to be lifeless, then it's just a rock. And, you know, I think do with what we, what we will with, with rocks. I mean, it's got a certain aesthetic beauty to it, but it's different from it being a place of life. I think there are two different directions that we can go down that, down that pathway. So I, I, the more I think about, you know, when people ask me that, like, what's your practical reason for us to go to space? It is to give us that escape valve to stop wrecking the earth. Because you, when you see that moat in a start, you know, in that, in that glint of sunlight, it tells you that that's all we've got. And it could be that this is the only good place in the entire universe. And we are, you know, filling the oceans with pollution and we are, um, filling the atmosphere with carbon dioxide and we are changing the environment. We're making our home uh, a worse place to live. Yeah. There's, there's much of what you've said that I totally agree with and a few things I would say quite differently, I think, or somewhat differently. But that's, that's, why, that's why we need the conversation. Yeah. It's, it's not something that's going to be solved with sound bites. We need to as human beings engage with each other on these issues. I agree with you totally that uh, Elon and Jeff have different philosophies and note the term philosophy, because when I think of philosophy, I'm not thinking of epistemology, ontology, and a bunch of other words that very few of us understand. I'm really thinking of philosophy of life. How, how do we approach the world? And I agree with you. And I think, their different philosophies illustrate why our space philosophy is so important. Elon has said a number of things that illustrate his approach. One is he's talked about a lot of people on Mars. Uh, the other is, you know, when he announced some of the details of his plan at the conference in Mexico a couple of years ago, People were pressing him on issues like governance and ethics and what if you find life and things like that. And he finally said, you know, I'm like the guys that built the railroads to go out west. Yeah. I'm going to get you there. Yeah. What you do there is up to you. I'm not going to figure everything out. Well, on the one hand, that's a very simple and, and straightforward approach. On the other hand, again, for the people who rode out there on the railroads, it was great. For the people who were already there, the indigenous people, it wasn't so great. Um, so this is sort of one, I mean, you mentioned that you have a bunch of task forces. This is one, this idea of 
consideration of of the life that we're expecting to find as we go out into yep. the into the solar system what are some of the other sort of larger issues that that you think that yeah. we should we should consider yeah um well there will be a task force on the military that's a big issue uh, what is the role of the military in the solar system uh, what i see right now is that we're following our traditional national instincts and that that could raise a lot of questions as to what is what exactly is going to be happening in the solar system is it going to be quote unquote a state of nature and competition or to to some extent will there be collaboration and working together a lot of people have asked me what do i think of the space force uh, i'm not inherently opposed to a space force for the united states i'm not opposed to nations having their own militaries there but as a person who's pushing collaborative efforts in the solar system, I worry about the rhetoric that you need in order to justify a space force. So when the administration started talking about why do we need it, the Russians, the Chinese, all these other people, they're threatening our space assets. And, you know, they're justifying it on that basis. I think that the military could play an absolutely critical role in what we're talking about. That is to say our purpose. They're great in hostile environments. They're great at accomplishing things that civilians can't accomplish. And so the role of the military, and I'm just speaking for myself, has to be examined as to is it, is it creating more competition and more um, what would we call it negative outcomes as opposed to positive ones yeah i mean i i mean as human beings wherever we go we're going to take our humanity with us and one of the things that we will take with us is our military and so i feel like the role of a military is going to be inevitable i want the i like the name starfleet better than i like space force so, you know, that would be my preference yeah. that they called it Starfleet. And that way, just like from day one, you're thinking Star Trek. It's a branding thing, right? But um, but I think that also kicks the can down the road because you're essentially, you know, as you get to a point for when you have a military in space, you have the ability to cause damage at a scale the likes of which has never been been possible. You change the orbit of one asteroid or one comet and before anybody notices you can cause a globally destructive event that that if we can't sort that out when we do go to space we will just take this danger like like again you know the idea that we can escape planet earth that that the purpose of of spaceflight is to escape planet earth so that any event won't wipe us all out he's kind of just not thinking big picture enough about the capability of what future enemy combatants will be able to do with objects moving mm. tens of kilometers per second so i think that that this is our sandbox where we get to try and sort out how to have different nation states militaries working without wiping each other out you take that to space 
you lose a lot of the checks and balances and controls that that are that exist right now and so now is the best time to sort out how do you exist together in a confined space and not wipe each other out and i really hope that we learn that lesson because we're only gonna up the stakes when we go to space yeah and i think that this is the kind of thinking we need to do now because there are forces at work that are pretty much projecting our current ways of thinking out into the solar system and that was why one of the things i i stepped back from a little bit was i think you said i think we should just go out and exploit the universe and um, assuming it's lifeless yeah and this is the kind of thinking that's important to uh, bring to bear. Uh, I actually wrote a paper about this on, uh, it was for a, a conference at Harvard on planetary engineering. And in that paper raised the question, do planets have rights? How, how would we deal with that philosophical question? That is to say, when astronauts leave the earth and look back, sometimes they say to me, it looked like a living thing. They had this sense that that earth was alive. Now, not everybody has seen the earth that way. I think many people on the earth don't see it as a living system, but we know it is. And, we, we know it has life. We know it may itself be alive in that sense. And this brings us to the question of what is, is having life on a planetary body, the criterion for it having rights, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. If it's lifeless, no, you know, we well, can do what we want. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are, I mean, you could have the same argument about the, the Grand Canyon, right? And say, is the, you know, the Grand Canyon is, let's say the Grand Canyon had no life. You know, do we just fill it in and, and put in a parking lot? It has an aesthetic value to us as the observers of it. And when I think about the crazy ridge that is on Iapetus or the really cool um, chasms that could be on uh, Triton and things like that. I mean, there are some really wonderful places in the universe. And I think that, but that if they are lifeless, then it is about us wanting to appreciate them and the impact that they have, which is sort of a reflection back on life. So I think there is value there, but I, you know, most people will have no problem picking up a rock that they find and building a wall out of it, incorporating that rock into the wall that, that goes around their house. And so where you draw that line is what is the aesthetic value and what is its, you know, purpose. But I, which is different for me from just like, like as soon as you find life on Mars or Europa or Enceladus or any of these places, then you have uh, a deeper responsibility that needs to be taken into account. And, and I can agree, I can agree with you that, you know, there, there, there are value even to 
the lifeless rocks out there? Well, this is a kind of topic I think the human space program would want to hash out. And I think you've come up with a criterion. If there's life there, that's, that's what matters in a way to, to you. And certainly if you think about Jeff Bezos and his philosophy, uh, he's drawing from Jerry O'Neill's approach. And he has said, we have to leave the earth to save it. Yeah. And this is the best planet in the solar system. And like a lot of ethical issues, maybe what humanity is going to say is we got to sacrifice some asteroids yeah. to save the earth. Or, you know, we've got to use, we've got to mine the moon to build our space settlements. But that's better than putting a million people on the surface of, of Mars. It, again, it's not the kind of thinking we're used to because it's holistic and we're looking at the entire solar system. And we're trying to get ahead of the curve here. And a good example of what happens when we don't is space junk. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we first started exploring outer space, we didn't really give much thought to it. And we've got all these uh, spacecraft and satellites that are circling the Earth. And they're actually quite dangerous at this point. Um, it seems remarkable looking back at it that nobody really thought about that. But it was, again, it was a short-term goal. Let's get there. Let's do it. Uh, nobody, I think, perhaps nobody really realized how fast we would progress and that we would, we would need to clean it up in order to keep going out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and, and now the cleanup job is going to be really tough. I mean, people are proposing different missions that will go up and, and be able to harpoon a piece of space junk and help deorbit it back into the atmosphere. But each one is literally a, a separate mission that has to match the, the trajectory and be able to do that. It's very expensive. And so once again, we find that what we thought was, was something that was expedient in the beginning turns out having to cost us more money to clean it up down the road. I would love to give people a chance to ask you some questions as well. So um, okay. uh, Brad McGashett asks, Frank, what do you think about possible government structures of future space colonies? That is a great question. And uh, again, one that I would think we would want to tackle in one of our task forces. I think that... Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but come on, what's your, what's your opinion? <laughs> my, well, my opinion opinion is, can't yeah. be I want a task force to tell me, but I, I understand that you to double check your your yeah, opinion. I, I, I was getting to that. Uh, I think that we've actually evolved excellent government structures on the earth. Uh, I know that what most people consider the best possible uh, or many people consider the best possible form of government is really direct democracy. Um, and the question there becomes, can we create small enough uh, settlements uh, of people that we could have a degree of democracy uh, out there in the space settlements? Certainly, again, going back to Jerry O'Neill, 
that was one of his visions that these settlements that he was envisioning would be small enough that you could have that. I, I had an interesting conversation with Sidney Nakahodo. Some people may know Sidney. He's uh, with the New York Space Alliance, creator of that. One of his ideas was uh, one of the interesting forms of government out there, maybe on the moon, would be integrating artificial intelligence into the government structure so that many policies and procedures would be recommended or generated by an AI system. And his reasoning for that was that it's going to be a dangerous environment. A mistake could actually destroy the, the community. And this might be a place to experiment with the extent to which AI could help create a better government. Um, you know, other people have talked about the danger of extremely totalitarian structures because of that very uh, problem. So I think we, we should look at the O'Neill model and see if we can think about creating small communities that can survive, but also not give way to authoritarian government. Right. Um, and do you see, for example, I mean, one of the real uh, drivers of people leaving, like sort of going out to new territories is they get a certain level of independence. They get to leave the, the, what they felt were the laws of where they came from to, to gain additional freedom. And so you can imagine that same philosophy holding as people attempt to go out in, into space as well. So I think there's some, there's a real value to say, you know, one of the benefits you get from living in a place that wants you dead space is that you get to at least make your own decisions about how you want to live your life. Yeah, there's a reason libertarians are so drawn <laughs> yeah. to this. Uh, you know, one thing I think is interesting is looking at the International Space Station. They don't really have a form of government per se, but I think it would be interesting to study in more detail how they have governed themselves because even though the astronauts there are all there as representatives of their countries, they essentially, and they do have a commander, um, they do have a lot of freedom, I think, to work out how they get, get the job done. And I haven't seen a study of that. It would, be, it, it would be perhaps a precursor to understanding what about a community on the moon or on Mars or in an international space settlement like O'Neill envisioned? I, I, unfortunately, we don't have much other information except that. I'm, uh, I'm super jealous that you got a chance to work with O'Neill because I think he is one of my favorite thinkers. There's a great conversation just going on in the chat right now about O'Neill cylinders. And <clears throat> for me, the idea of you know, I always I always say on the on my channel that gravity wells are for suckers. So if you leave a gravity well, why would you go into another gravity well, right? Why go down into Mars and have to escape Mars again? You made it to space. Stay in space, and and I think that idea of these, you know, and there's a there's a there's lots of room 
room for quadrillions of human beings should yes. we be able to get along and be able to to figure that out there's tons of room and an opportunity for us to explore many different philosophies as long as these philosophies aren't destructive to each other and that's and yeah, that's the challenge there's a chance to experiment with many different forms of government, economics, and other aspects of human interaction out there, which again is one of the benefits of being in that kind of a setting. And it's possible, even though I'm envisioning a form of unity of the program, I don't want to stop the diversity and the experimentation and and even the evolution. One thing we haven't really talked about is the fact that humanity may well evolve in biologically different directions under the influence of low or zero gravity, radiation, and all of the other uh, aspects of the environment that we don't have here on Earth. Yeah. We don't want to stop that experimentation. That could be part of our evolution. Not to mention what the future of our technology looks like as we merge with our robot overlords and, uh, you know, and what the future of, of that looks like as well. That sounds like work for another task force. It is. <clears throat> yeah. To, uh, to, to sort out uh, what, the what the future of, of humanity uh, looks like. I've got uh, one more question here from A.V. Scott and Flower. How do you think governments will distribute re space real estate? Wars, diplomacy, commerce, all of the above? Great question. I've been studying the Outer Space Treaty, which is about the only comprehensive law we have to govern the solar system. And it's become clear to me that the whole issue of private property was not completely resolved in the Outer Space Treaty and possibly on purpose. But the more I considered it, the more obvious is that's a critical question. Um, I don't know the answer to, to that question of how we're going to decide uh, if private property is okay, and if so, how. Um, and again, we need to resolve it fairly quickly. Or I think the question was, will it be done through war or yeah. military? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it may well be because right now, another thing that becomes obvious to anyone is that law is only applicable if there's force behind it. So if someone manages to get out of the, um, the realm of control of people on earth, how are you going to stop them from claiming land and saying, this is mine and I'll defend it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So probably one of the core economic concerns is going to be, what is the role of private property? Yeah. I mean, I think we see that for, for countries here, when you give people the ability to own real estate, for example, their standard of living grows dramatically because they have a stable base of operations to build to build some kind of wealth and that feels like one of these almost like rights that that human beings need to be able to have and in theory yeah. there should be a bottomless amount of 
you know, until we get to Alpha, if the Alpha Centaurans have a problem, but until then, there's like a lot of resources out there in space. So we're reaching the end of our hour, Frank. I I know we could we could uh, chat all day, um, but it was absolutely fascinating. And my hope is that this would just give people a an introduction into the work that you've done with the uh, the overview effect and the Cosmo hypothesis. I'll put up my copy of the book here so everyone can see. Where can people follow you and find out more about what you're working on? Apart from the book, Cosmo Hypothesis, yeah. Frank White. Yeah. So uh, I have a website, frankwhiteauthor.com. Uh, it's a new website that I'm populating. Uh, at the back of the book, there's an email address. People can contact me there as well. It's been set up specifically for this purpose. There you go. Cosmotheory1 at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, email me. We'll start the conversation. And... Uh, all yeah, right. I think those are good ones, and right. uh, look forward to hearing from people. Terrific. Let me know if you need somebody on a task force. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm signing you up on the uh, rocks have <laughs> Do rocks have value. <laughs> That's it. You're gonna nope. chair. No way. I'm. I want to be on the O'Neill cylinders one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching. Thanks to uh, the moderators. Thanks to the to the audience. Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And uh, next week, I forget, we have another guest. Uh, very cool. I should be more organized about this, but I'm not. Uh, next week, we talked to Dr. Ian O'Neill, uh, who is a uh, solar physicist, was the uh, director of the Discovery Space and used to be a writer with Universe Today. So good friend. We're going to have a great conversation. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk to you uh, next week. Thank you so much.